0: Hello, welcome to the Vineyard Cardiff podcast. Today, one of our associate pastors, Alice, is continuing our series in the book of Philippians, which we have entitled Joyful. It is fantastic, we can't wait for you to hear it, so sit back and enjoy. have the great joy of having two little people in my life, my two boys, and they are often full of excitement for things that, you know, I might not find so exciting myself. You know, this week they got to go in the church van and it was super exciting for them. And you can always tell when they're excited about something by the way that they talk about it. You know, say they've been out to a friend's party um, and they've had a lovely time. And then before sometimes they're even through the front door, they are already talking to me about it. You know, mummy, we did this, and then this thing happened, and then we got to do this, and we got to eat this, and then so-and-so did this, which was really funny, and coming over go there for my birthday, and so on, and so on. And you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep up, I'm trying to listen, but I'm like, you know what, darling, that's so great. I'd love to hear all about it, but just take a breath, you know, take your coat off, take your shoes off, and then you can tell me all about it, just pause, you know. <laughs> and today I am carrying on in our series in Philippians, looking at the letter that Paul wrote to this group of people in Philippi whom he so dearly loved. And whilst Paul is obviously not a child, of course, he certainly is excited. You know, having just written this hymn of praise to King Jesus, you know, that we looked at last week, having created this picture of Jesus exalted above everything, above everyone, with everyone bowed in worship before him, Paul is then full of excitement and passion as he moves on to talk about what it looks like to live a life worthy of this king. And like my boys, you know, he hardly pauses for breath. Now, whilst your Bible might have broken down verses 12 to 18, um, down a little bit to help you read it, actually, in the original Greek, all the material covered there is just three sentences, three long ones. It's like, hey, Paul, you might just want to take a breath for a minute. You know, you might just want to put the old full stop in there. But no, he's just too excited and presumably at this point so full of the spirit that he's gone, he's off. He's gone for it. And each sentence in these verses, 12 to 18, they are like a kind of a building block, if you like, each one building on the one before, as Paul pieces together what it looks like to live a life poured out for King Jesus, a life worthy of the gospel. And he uses some really vivid language and imagery to help us grasp this more tangibly. He's essentially laying out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And as a church, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this over the past couple of years through our Live Like Jesus framework. And um, next week, we are going to be starting a new series in our Live Like Jesus discipleship series. We're going to pause Philippians for a few weeks and come back to it again later. And we are going to be considering um, for the next few weeks about what it means as us as Jesus' disciples to live a life of prayer. But what we read about today in Philippians is in many ways a helpful refresher over some of the key principles and concepts that we've already started to talk about and think about as we consider what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So let's jump in. Philippians 2 verses 12 to 18. Paul begins, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear And trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So let's break it down block by block, one long sentence after one long sentence. And in each one, as I said, Paul has given us this key image or word picture to help us understand what he is trying to build on. So the first building block, the first long sentence, fear and trembling. Let's have a look at it again. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul starts and he's full of encouragement for this bunch of people in Philippi whom he so dearly loves. And he kind of says, you know, you've always been so faithful in your obedience to Jesus in living a life worthy of the gospel. So keep it up. You know, remember that Paul is in prison, as he writes. And so kind of obviously um, he is no longer able to be with them in person to directly teach them and have influence over them. But here he is cheering them on from his jail cell cell and he says, continue, you know, don't stop, keep going. I wonder if we could see Paul in some ways as a bit like a parent who has left their teenage children at home for the first time as they go off on holiday. You know, I remember once uh, reading years ago, um, when I myself was still young, about uh, these teenage siblings whose parents had gone away and they threw a massive house party whilst they were home alone. And it got really out of hand that the, the house was totally trashed and the police were called. Now, this was in the days before the internet. If you can remember those days. And uh, so pictures of this house were published in the paper and um, these pictures of this house absolutely trashed. The toilet, I remember, was actually hanging off the ceiling. (laughs) Yes. But the parents, um, you know, these uh, pictures were published in the paper before the parents even got to see for themselves the damage that had been done. And I remember the horror of imagining what it would be like for these parents when they got home and saw their house. Now, for some of the churches that Paul has planted, you wouldn't blame him for being a bit nervous about what would be going on whilst he is imprisoned and unable to get to them. About what would be awaiting for him if and when he got out and was able to go and see them. But he wasn't worried about this church, the Philippians. No, he knows that they would be mature enough to be left to their own devices so that they would keep going with faithful obedience to the way of Jesus Now, some translations add in the word own here at the end of verse 12 so that it reads, continue to work at your own salvation. You know, Paul knows that he can't do this for them, especially not whilst he's in prison. They have to take responsibility for their own discipleship to Jesus. This is their responsibility, not his. We are each responsible for our own walk with Jesus, our own discipleship to him. You know, as a leader in this church, my job is to cheer you on, to share from my own journey, to, you know, as Paul later says, to pour out my life in service to you. But I can't do it for you. You are responsible for your own relationship with Jesus. What does it look like for you to take responsibility for your own walk with Jesus? Now, some of you might be feeling a little uncomfortable at Paul's use of the word work here in verse 12 when he says work out your own salvation. You know, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought essentially the gospel message, the message of the cross was that there was nothing that we had to do to earn our salvation in Jesus to be saved from our sin and in relationship with our father. And you'd be right. That is the concept of grace. And it's at the heart of our faith. Salvation is God's work from start to finish, not ours. There is nothing we need to do to earn the love and grace of Jesus. We don't earn our salvation. That's the good news of the gospel message of the cross. And Paul is not saying here, work for your salvation. He is saying work out or outwork your salvation, which is very different. You are not saved by good works, but you are saved in order to do good works, to live out your faith in Jesus in such a way that brings deep transformation to yourself and to those around you. This is what it means to be a disciple, to live like Jesus. There are works that he has for you to do. There are works that he has for us as a church to do. So let's get going. But Paul makes it clear here in verse 13 that this is all to be powered by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that works in us to transform us. And it's the Holy Spirit who works through us to bring transformation to the world around us. And we have a part to play, of course. We'll come on to that. But it's the Spirit that does the heavy lifting. And Paul says here in verse 13 that it's the Spirit that gives us both the will, you know, the desire to want to live a life pleasing to God, and then it's the Spirit that gives us the power, the ability to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but I long to live a life that is pleasing to God, not in order to earn his love, but in response to his love for me. I want to make a difference to this world around me, you know, to live a life of meaning and purpose. And if you feel the same, that is the Holy Spirit working in you who puts that deepest desire in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that this is always the only desire in our hearts. You know, there can sometimes be a difference between our deepest desire and our strongest desire in any given moment, you know. Um, Your deepest desire for 2022 might be to be fit and healthy, you know, to eat well and look after yourself, to exercise as much as possible and so on. But in that moment, you know, one faced with a piece of rocky road, if you're me, you know, your strongest desire could be rather different. You know, or more seriously, in my life, you know, I desire to be a person that does not respond out of anger and insecurity to those around me, but to be a person instead established and rooted in the love of Jesus. But in a moment of frustration, my strongest desire in that instance can be to lash out and act otherwise. The discipleship journey is one where your deepest desire, namely to live a life that pleases God, and your strongest desire in any given moment are becoming more and more one and the same thing. This desire to do his will is placed in you by the Holy Spirit and he gives you the power, energon in Greek, where we get our word energy. He gives you the power to do it as he grows spiritual fruit in us, you know, fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. That is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in us, worked out over a lifetime of discipleship to Jesus, or as Eugene Peterson would put it, over a long obedience in the same direction. But Paul says it is our job to partner with him, to take responsibility for our own discipleship journey. And he says that we are to do this with fear and trembling. You know, that's the first image Paul gives us, fear and trembling. And what he means is is that as Jesus' disciples, we are to live with a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but having a fear of the Lord is not something I hear talked about much. You know, to have a fear of the Lord is a command that comes up countless times throughout scripture yet is in danger of falling out of our theology in the Western church. And that's because we often, I think, associate a fear of the Lord with kind of a religious spirit, you know, with the kind of fire and brimstone preaching from days of old where people were terrified into submission more than anything else. I saw this week the film Belfast, which is an amazing film. Um, if you want to see it. And there's a scene in it where there's this frightening preacher who is like kind of sweating and shouting from the pulpit as he screams damnation to the people in his church, including this little boy, Buddy, who is the central character in the film. And he is left terrified of God. That is not what having a fear of the Lord is. This is not the same thing as being afraid of the Lord. No, we do not need to be afraid before God. You know, you are his beloved child. Now, instead, to have a fear of the Lord is to approach him with a sense of awe, wonder and delight. It is to take him seriously, you know, with reverence. Um, as an illustration, I remember last year we were away, we were down in St David's um, in the October half term. And, you know, it was like, as you'd expect in October, it was bad weather. But, you know, I had marched the whole family down to the beach because, you know, I'm afraid that's the way I roll. And we were st- on the beach in this kind of stormy weather. And I stood there looking out over the sea and it was magnificent. Um, it was, I said, stormy, so there were like huge waves kind of crashing down onto the sand. And there were rocks just in front of me, and as these waves kind of crashed into these rocks, you know, the spray then just flew up into the air. There was this huge noise and roar of the sea. And as I was watching the sea crashing onto these rocks, you know, I was just aware of the magnificence of it, the beauty of it. But I was also aware of the power of it, the danger of it, the force of those waves. They like took my breath away. You know, you wouldn't want to mess around in the sea on a day like that. You know, on days like that, the sea demands to be taken seriously. I suddenly felt very small in comparison. That's what it's like with the fear of the Lord. You know, C.S. Lewis said this, fear of God leads to a certain kind of shrinking. I love that. You know, he is big and I am small. He is all powerful and I am not. His ways are higher than my ways. And a fear of the Lord causes us to take our discipleship to him seriously, to take obedience to him seriously. It stops us reducing God to someone who just is there to suit our purposes. And of course, fear of the Lord is to be held in tension with the love of the Lord. You know, he loves you. He is for you. But he is big. He is not to be trifled with. He is to be taken seriously. And we are to approach him with awe and wonder, with reverence and fear, fear and trembling. OK, that's building block one. Building block two, the second sentence where the key images shine like stars. Let's jump in. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So for Paul, this transformation process that is discipleship to Jesus that comes from us taking our discipleship seriously and from the spirit working in us This process is one that should bring transformation to the world around us, like the stars bring transformation to the night sky. You know, we are transformed in order to bring transformation. Now, it's probably not obvious to most of us here that Paul is making lots of Old Testament references to the story of the people of Israel. Now, I'm not going to read all these passages out now in this talk, but why not write them down and just put half an hour aside this week. You know, if you love to study the word, just put half an hour aside just to go through them in your own time and read them for yourself. But when God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he did so in order that they were to be a light to the nations around them. And one of the first things he commanded to them, just before they're given the Ten Commandments to follow, he commands them to fear the Lord. That's Deuteronomy chapter 10. But there's lots of verses. But they do not do this. And in fact, if you were to look at Exodus chapter 16 and 17, you know, the moment when they've literally just crossed um, over the Red Sea, and when they've first been rescued, the two most frequent words used to describe them as a people are not as people that fear and love the Lord. no. They are people that are prone to grumbling and arguing. You know, those two words appear countless times in those two chapters in Exodus 16 and 17. And these are the same words that Paul uses here in verse 14. And then Moses, later towards the end of his life, he speaks about this first generation that were brought out of slavery in Egypt and how they failed in their calling to be a people that brought light to the surrounding nations. And he calls them, in Deuteronomy 32, a crooked and twisted generation. These are the same words that Paul uses here in verse 15. And then the prophet Daniel, reflecting on the nation of Israel's failures, looks forward to a new kingdom that was coming, when the wise, those that feared the Lord, would take God's laws seriously and um, shine like the stars to the world around them. These are the same words that Paul uses here in verse 15. So Paul is looking backwards to the story of his people, ultimately a story of failure. And he's speaking to the church and he's like, let's not be like that. Let's not let this be our story. We are not to become a crooked and twisted generation that looks like the crooked and twisted world around us. We are the the church. We are not to be subsumed by infighting and grumbling. We are to fear the Lord. We are to be a people transformed by the spirit, by the kingdom message of Jesus. We are to bring light into the darkness, beauty into a world marred by ugliness and brutality. And the truth is we live... In a twisted and crooked generation don't we i don't know about you but i used to feel uncomfortable when i read words like this in scripture you know in case it sounded a bit judgmental should anyone read it that wasn't following jesus but i think something has shifted i think more and more people are aware that there is something deeply wrong with our world with our culture at the moment you know for an example i was reading an article the other day about a website called OnlyFans. Now I've never been on it, but the premise is that people can put their videos on that and then people, other people can then pay to view their videos. Now the reality is that it's mostly kind of adult sex videos that get uploaded and people then pay to watch them. And the article was about a move to limit the content of some of these videos. And the people that were selling these videos of themselves were up in arms about this. You know, for them, this was a loss of human freedom. This was their choice to do this. And this was, gonna, you know, this was their livelihood, how they made money. And what struck me to the core was not so much that people would sell the most private side of themselves for money, nor that people would pay to see it. Yeah, shocking as this is, you know, and it is deeply shocking, this is a reality that has been around in some form for thousands of years. No, the thing that actually really shocked me all the more was the tone of the article. The implication being that doing such a thing, that the existence of such a website should in no way be questioned. Because if this was how someone wanted to make money, then so be it. It was their freedom to do so. And individual freedom in this article was the highest priority, you know, and there was to be no questioning of this whatsoever, and there was no understanding at all of the impact that prioritising such so-called kind of individual freedom has on the way in which it creates a highly sexualized culture that affects us all. Not to mention that this website is ripe for exploitation in terms of child, um, uh, in terms of children and sexual trafficking. None of this was mentioned, and I read, I read through this article and I thought this is all rotten, right to the core. What a crooked and twisted generation we live in. And this is just one example of the ugliness that human beings are capable of, of what darkness surrounds us. We are called to be lights that shine like stars, that bring beauty to the world around us, like the magnificence of a star-lit night to show that there is a deeper, better way to live, that life with Jesus is the best way to live. It is the, what we are made to do. We are transformed in order to bring transformation. And we do this clinging on to the word of God, the word of life, verse 16, Paul says, the word of life that teaches us how to live, that holds a mirror up for us and for the world around us and says, you know, no, this is not how you are designed to live. This is how you are designed to live. We do this clinging onto the word of God and fueled by the Holy Spirit in us that gives us, as we've said, the will and the power to live differently. Fear and trembling shine like stars. And then we come to our final building block. Poured out is the image that Paul gives us. Let's jump in. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In his last long sentence, the image Paul uses here is of a drink offering being poured out. Now, again, this is a reference to the Old Testament, to the sacrificial system that was in place, where on occasions alongside an animal or a grain sacrifice, wine would also be poured out as an offering to God. And Paul is describing his life as poured out in service to God. And he's encouraging the church to do likewise, to live a life spent in the service of the king, or to use John Wimber's phrase, you know, John Wimber who started the Vineyard Movement, he used to say, I am just loose change in God's pocket, he can spend me as he pleases. Now the reality is that many of us love the idea of shining like stars, you know, of living lives that make a difference to the world around us, but we don't like the cost involved with it. The idea of being poured out like a drink offering or spent like spare change is not a comfortable one, if we're honest, because this reframes everything else we still want to live under what I called a few weeks ago the gospel of me my priorities my desires my truth but that is not what we see in Paul's life and moreover it is not the invitation given to us by Jesus who says this whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it Now, the word Jesus uses here for the word life is the Greek word psyche, which is the word for self. You know, he's not talking about literally dying. He's talking about the death to self. You know, in a world that revolves around the self, you know, protect yourself, promote yourself, sell yourself if you want, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself. Jesus said, die to yourself. Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. Where are you still living under the gospel of me? What area of your life is Jesus inviting you to pour out again for his service? And Paul is joyful to be poured out in this way. You know, those verses end with a note of joy, gladness and rejoicing. Why? Because he understands a deep mystery about the Christian faith, the mystery of discipleship to Jesus. And it's this, that a life poured out is a life overflowing that a life poured out in sacrificial service to the king and his kingdom is a life made whole, not empty. Not one that is lacking, but one that is overflowing with joy. And Paul, with his eyes fixed on Jesus, knows that it is all gain. It is all a win. And Paul describes himself as a life poured out, and then he invites the church to do likewise and rejoice with him in the process. We likewise are called to pour out our lives in the service of Jesus to be poured out like a drink offering to be spare change in his pocket to be a people that take our discipleship to Jesus seriously you know with fear and trembling in awe of God people that recognize the cost but also see the infinite gain that live as people transformed who bring transformation to the world around us who shine like stars thank you